This podcast was recorded following prolonged exposure to the wine vortex. Listener discretion is advised. The Exton Moss Experiment. Adventures in wine and space with Simon Exton and Ken Moss. Episode 60. The Corridor People. Hello everyone, and a very warm and rather sombre welcome to the latest edition of the Exton Moss Experiment. I regrettably am Ken Moss. And I thankfully am Simon Exton, because this isn't sombre in the slightest. We are going to watch one of the best pieces of television that's ever been made. Apparently. Yes, it's a wonderful, wonderful show from the 1960s, uh, 1966 to be precise, called The Corridor People. (sighs) Now, we've already, we previously watched an episode of The Corridor People, which I think is marvellous. It's one of my favourite shows. Ken uh, was I, less keen. No, I wasn't. It was, to be fair, it is a little odd. It's not terribly well known. And it was known, it, it's been called by some people the Twin Peaks of the 60s, which I think is incredibly unfair because Twin Peaks is dreadful. Whereas this is fantastic. I would reverse it, that, but go on, continue. Um, it's kind of a, a spy drama um, with a lot of odd and anarchic things going on um, and a, a fairly strange set of characters. It's, I bear in mind, I've only seen one of the four. Were there, how many were made? Four. There were only four made. So we're going to watch all so four of them back to back. And of all the things that are still exist in their entirety, this is one of them. It's marvellous, isn't it? Uh, it's It's... Thrilling that there's no gap in the archive. I've only seen the first one of these, uh, which I have promised Simon Faithfully I would rewatch again along with the other three. I mean, I am going to pay for this with something else. You are going to pay for it. I don't. I haven't worked out what yet. Bloody Sherlock, probably. <sighs> However, a promise is a promise. It is one of those programs that I've looked at and thought, "How the hell was this ever made? How was it commissioned?" Who read the premise of this and thought, and I love it, I love it, go away and make me 400 episodes. It's mental. It's, yes. It, yeah, but you say that like it's a bad thing. In the same way that, I've mentioned this before, Monty Python. This was made in 1969. Who in the right mind? I think somebody somewhere must have been suffering from some dread disease or shell shock from the war or something to commission these programs because they, they don't make any sense. I'm not going to slag it off any further before we watch it because we have two very important pieces of housekeeping to get out of the way first. We do. We have large glasses of gin. Me, because I'm planning to thoroughly enjoy this. Ken, because I've had to bribe him to do this. I've done it out of honour because you ask nicely and I'm a sucker for people who ask nicely. Get your tonic screwdriver out, open the gin and let's see what we've got. What have we got? I don't know. You've got the label. Oh, yes, of course. Uh, yeah, tonight's gin is Broker's London Gin, which apparently has won a streak of awards. The Ultimate Cocktail Challenge, the world's best dry martini, the world's best aviation chairman's trophy winner, the Ultimate Spirits Challenge New York, the world's best gin. So there's a fairly impressive array of titles already on there. Apparently it's being talked about as the new Martin Miller. That's not saying much. I'll I'll strike that from the record. Oh well, chin chin, let's bottoms up. Skull. It's very nice. Yeah. I don't think it deserves all that. I, I don't think no, it's it's um It's a perfectly pleasant, hits the spot gin. 
doesn't do anything massively exciting with the spot once it's hit it, but it's a, it's gin flavoured without any interesting extra notes. No. Um, but it, it it's clean and it's smooth and it doesn't leave a nasty aftertaste. And but it's fairly unremarkable. There's nothing wrong with it, but it's nothing. Um, I can't say that I'm racing to the bottom of the glass. That's not. It's not. Well, we haven't started the corridor, people yet. How much is left in the bottle? None. Mm. I did. It's, I did make you a fairly strong gin. It, it shows. It's one. Of, it's one of those gins that you could probably use as a, the basis for a good botanicals cocktail or something. It makes a very nice gin and tonic. Yeah, it does. It, it just doesn't make an exciting gin and tonic. No. I'm going to give it three bonus. I'm going to give it three. Yeah, it's, and that's not a slight on it. It's just. In a world of, of gins now where things are... It's a it's a perfectly functional green horse type gin. Yes, of which there is nothing wrong with it now. Um, I mean, the corridor people of gins for me, third outing that it's getting a mention, but I want to broadcast this far and wide, is Mason's Yorkshire Tea Gin. Yeah, that wasn't nice. Avoid this, boys and girls. I mean, it didn't stop us drinking it. Yeah, but we've had to mix it with God knows what in order to make it palatable. So yeah, that's uh, Broker's Gin. Broker's London Gin, three out of five birds. While we sip the gin, I think it's... uh, If you bring your glass, we'll go down into the basement Mm. and open the Black Archive. Here we are, down deep underneath Maverick Studios, in the vault of all lost television and radio and film. What would you like to pull out? I would like to pull out an, a BBC anthology series from the mid to late 60s to early 70s called Out of the Unknown. Oh. Um, now, we've already done an episode of this, mm. and quite a, a number of the episodes exist. Um, all but two from the first series exist. Um, I think four from the second series, one and most of one from the third series and about half of the, the fourth series. So it's actually got quite a good survivability. It was an, initially an anthology adaptation of classic television science, science fiction. So there was Isaac Asimov, Frederick Pohl, um, Clifford Simak, a, a lot of the, um, the classic authors of Silver Age science fiction. The ones that survive are almost all fantastic. There are one or two that were in the first series that were written specifically for the series and they're not actually quite as good. Um, still worth watching but not to the, the levels of brilliance that the, um, the adaptations were in the first series. The second series has some phenomenal episodes. We did... Uh, level is this seven. where Level 7 comes yep, from? That's, a, that's the second The episode. other one that you keep mentioning is The Machine, Machine Stops. Stops. It was the first episode from this series that I saw it is absolutely incredible I can watch it over and over what is the premise of this one because you've never actually told me what it's about no that's because we're going to watch it ah, it, is. No, it, is. it was a short story written by E.M. Forster round about the turn of the 20th century so it's a very old story brilliantly adapted uh, there's also a, a fantastic adaptation of a story called Lambda One from the, the second series that yeah. we can watch and, at some point. The fourth one is uh, The Tunnel Under the World. That's not quite as great. But there were a number of the Asimov robot stories that were adapted, Satisfaction Guaranteed, um, Liar, The Prophet, and unfortunately none of these exist apart from a, a handful of, of tiny little clips. That's my choice for the Black Archive. Mine is something that does exist, 
Uh, but I would prefer the original masters. It's the radio version from 1968 of The Hobbit by the BBC. Uh, now, I was absolutely stunned to learn that the versions that are put out on commercial release are taken from off-air recordings. Now, they're all right, they're, they're perfectly serviceable, but once you know it, A, you're surprised that the off-air recordings are that good, but B, it makes you wonder what the master tapes sounded like. Now, I'm a big fan of The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. The 1981 radio version of Lord of the Rings remains for me the outright favourite. It's absolutely fantastic. If you've not heard it, it's a 13-hour series. Absolutely wonderful. No, 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 don't do that. It's because it takes you an hour-long chunks and originally 26 half-hour chunks. It gentles you in. It doesn't smash you over the head every five minutes with a colossal battle scene. The Hobbit is really, it's little more than a short story. There's plenty goes on in it, but it's nowhere it's not even half the length of one of the volumes of Lord of the Rings, which they've managed to pad out into three enormous films. The Hobbit itself, uh, it was presented in eight half hours in 1968. It's not to the same quality as the 1981 Lord of the Rings, but I would still like to hear it. I, I, I wish the original masters still existed. They were rubbed. So that's my, my little fan wish. Now that we've closed the door and retrieved some of the gems from the past, it's time to pour, well, thank you Simon, you've poured me a very large gin already and it's in anticipation. This is going to be a long night, boys and girls. These are four hour long episodes. So as this uh, podcast continues, I know damn well that I'm going to be getting more and more drunk. I apologise in advance for my future self, uh, but I'm going to need it. Do they have specific titles, these episodes? Um, they do, and they're all titled Victim as Something. So the first episode is Victim as Birdwatcher, um, written as all of the four episodes were by Eddie Boyd. And this was transmitted on the 26th of August, 1966. And we do have a Who alumnus in it, but we'll come back, come on to that later. With a heavy heart, Ron VT. Hee <laughs> hee! That was the first episode of The Corridor People, Victim as Birdwatcher. It is the second time that I've seen that bloody thing. I've got to admit, the second time around... No, I'm not going to say I enjoyed it. The second time around, it made more sense. The first time it hits you, it's just wave after wave of surrealist nonsense. The second time, you can sort of pick your way through to the bones of a sort of... um, Is plot the word you're looking for? Because it does have one. It does have one. You've just got to navigate. The script is done in such a surreal way. Because the the actual bare bones of the story, which in this episode revolves around a bird watcher who has one casting share on the board of a, a cosmetics company that has produced this, purely by accident, this chemical that can knock somebody out for 24 hours. The basic story of the government versus this rather stunning woman who I'm not actually sure what she is or what she runs this anyway Persian yeah she's, she's Persian. Very clear about the fact yeah she's, she's very Persian. very clear about the fact she's Persian because she's wearing heavy eye makeup and a variety of Servalan-esque dresses 
It's just mental. I mean, they she manages to seduce this man that isn't interested in women at all. He, all he's interested in is bird watching. So she starts off by shooting the bird that he's watching to persuade him that she means business and then withholds his insulin and then marries him. So there's a bit of Stockholm Syndrome stuff going on. The thing that finally persuades him to sell his share is that he gets a visit from his uh, his godfather who tells him to be terribly stiff, stiff upper lip and British. And yes, this is probably going to kill him. But at least the um, cosmetics company uh, will revert to being the control of the British government. And uh, his argument is that with the British Empire shrinking, but the, this cosmetic company improving its sales, that uh, there are places on the world that may not be part of the empire anymore, but at least they'll smell British. Yes. I just have a problem with the script. I just think the script is a bit mental. The sets aren't up to much. The government department, you know, in the Ministry of Defence... Department K, run by a fellow called Cronk and his secretary and sometime assassin, Miss Dunner. Another camp fat bastard. We seem to be plagued by them during this recording session. So, you sent for us. So, we came. And to polish the car. Or your halo. Or walk the dog. Or dress the cat. All you have to do is rub the magic lamp. Christopher Vaughan, the well-known ornithologist, you know him, of course, is reported missing. He's a diabetic, and if his supply of insulin were to be cut off, he could die. Find him! He's a camp fat bastard. A little harsh, perhaps, but... We've had one in the Macro Terror. What else have we had today? Where they've been... Oh, they've been terribly camp. And I asked you outright, mid-session, where does the corridor bit come in with the corridor people? I've no idea. Even you can't answer it, and you love this series. Even the title doesn't make sense. Ah, we're only a quarter of the way in, and it's 20 past 11 at Bastard Night. Right. It does get a little weirder in some of the later episodes. Oh, well, fuck a doodle do. Let's drink more gin. Uh, I think I might go Amelia Rumsford at this point and put some sausage sandwiches on, because I'm going to need sustenance for the rest of this. That sounds like a plan. Excellent. Rum VT on episode two while I fire up the oven. This is victim as white bait. I have no words. Speaking. What? Say that again. My dead husband just walked in the door. My dead husband just walked in the door. My maid says that my dead husband just walked in the door. My dead husband just walked in the door. What the fuck is going on? Wait, well, thank you for asking. We're halfway through. I feel like I'm in a bad trip. We've just watched episode two of The Corridor People, Victim as Whitebait, and the plot is slightly convoluted. It starts off with Siri Van Epp digging up the private investigator Phil Scrotty's body. Scrotty. His fucking name is Scrotty. Yes. And he was shot by the government assassin, Miss Dunner, in the previous episode. Digs him up. Coffin is empty. The reason she was digging him up is because she has kidnapped a scientist called Robag who can bring the dead back to life. She's also dug up a number of other random corpses that have died recently to draw a veil over the fact that it's Scrotty that she's after. Robag has brought one of these corpses back to life, a, a fellow called Whitebait, because Robag's an alcoholic and he doesn't like drinking on his own, so he brought Whitebait back to life so he could have a drink, drinking companion. Unfortunately, Robag isn't a particularly... Well-adjusted character... 
isn't particularly good at drinking. And Whitebait drinks him under the table and then disappears off. In the meantime, Phil Scrotty, who is is still alive, has holed up with Whitebait's widow, Abigail, who is played by Ingrid Hafner, who's the, the first Avengers girl, in a seedy little hotel. And she's quite freaked about the fact that Whitebait has come back to life because she was quite enjoying the, the life of being a young widow. At the same time, Siri Van Epp has taken on a client um, who, through various business dealings, um, wants to try and avoid a massive tax bill. And because his business dealings are so complicated, all of the accountants who've looked at it have been unable to unravel things. But there is one super specialised forensic accountant. Honestly, who, this is like listening to one of my bad dreams. Forensic accountant is also very socially phobic. So the only person that he will work through is Phil Scrotty and meets him in a park. This is the reason Siri Van Epp wanted Phil Scrotty brought back to life so that he could intermediate with this accountant. I'm glad we're recording this because I don't understand a fucking word. Good morning, Miss Dunner. Morning, sir. I rather think we're in for a very busy day ahead. Speak for yourself, sir. My resignation, sir. Why? Because you've lost confidence in me. <laughs> Miss Dunner, have you ever shot a midget? Continue. So um, the government assassin, Miss Dunner, is sent out to try and kill Siri Van Epps, midget assassin called Nonsuch. And she goes to Siri, <laughs> she goes to Siri Van Epps headquarters, which is on top of an abandoned theatre, and tries to kill him. But there are no bullets in her, in her gun, so he shoots her instead. And it turns out that the government armourer has been sent has been sending her out without bullets in his gun because he excuse me the government armourer because he's traumatised about the fact that his mother was a suffragette um, and he thinks that guns are the last uh, remaining phallic symbol and providence of men and so doesn't think that they should be taken over by women you know, and promptly has a nervous fucking breakdown in the middle of the government department, Ministry of Defence office. Well, he has just been sacked for sending assassin out without any, any bullets. What, um, sort of screaming about women sweating? Oh, and having an extra layer of fat. Yeah, that was a bit odd. Um, so, in the end, Phil Scotty persuades Mrs. Whitebait to get her husband, the fellow who's brought back from the dead, to meet her on a particular park in the bench. He tells Siri Van Epp that that is where he's going to meet this accountant. Siri Van Epp turns up with her assassin who is disguised as a baby in a pram and shoots Whitebait thinking that he's the assassin. And at the very end, Phil Scrotty is there agreeing to send a compensation check to the accountant and Siri Van Epp's client gets away with his tax bill. In my head, Mm. the incidental music for all of that was the magic roundabout theme. No amount of Amelia Rumford's sausage sandwiches and teapots of strong gin are compensating for this. You will suffer, Mr. Exton. You will suffer. Dr. Exton. Dr. My ass. Episode three. Let's get this over with. Yeah, it's a shame. We're only halfway through. So that means we only have two more to go. The gins. The gins. Right. Okay, so the next episode... Oh, God, there's an explanation and all. Don't no, continue. The next episode is called Victim as Red. I wasn't going to give the plot away because oh, you don't like spoilers. No, Christ, please don't spoil it. should be enjoying these free drugs. So, shall we crack on with it? Yeah. Won't that be fun? Yeah. Do you worry about your loss of memory? Sometimes. Do you want to have it back again? It's always reassuring to know who you are and where you're from. It'll come back one day. A word, a tune, a particular scent, and it'll be there again. In 
times when it's almost happened. A word, a tune, a particular scent. A phrase. Say it. Two million pounds. You need somebody to look after you. Anyone in mind? Me. Right. Go on. Fire away the plot of this third baffling episode. This one's a little odder than the previous ones. No, really, is it? Uh, Victim is Red, and it's all about a amnesiac man that Sue Van Epp finds in the back seat of her car. And the only words that he can remember are $2 million. So she agrees to try and help him recover his memory. He says that he has little snatches of memory that come when he listens to a particular record, but he can't remember what record. So they spend ages listening to all sorts of different records. And at one point, his memory suddenly comes back and he remembers who he was. And he was an army officer. At the same time, um, his wife... Uh, oh, so what's she doing? Don't ask me. This is your fantasy, not mine. <laughs> <laughs> at the same time... It, his brother has been trying to find him and has employed Phil Scrotty for the last several years to, to try and track him down. His wife is also trying to find him. And it turns out that his wife is a go-between between him and the Russian spy ring. And he'd, he'd actually recovered his memory a couple of years beforehand and was trying to use Siri Van Epp as a, a reason to excuse his absence from the country. Uh, where he'd been living in Moscow. She realises that he's doing this. Phil Scrotty realises that they're, they're doing doing this. Phil Scrotty warns his wife that this is what's happening. Siri uh, Van Epp warns Kronk and Department K that this is what's happening. What's happening, they come and pick the soldier up and torture him to find out exactly what's going on. Phil Scrotty warns his wife that this is what's happening and she goes and commits suicide. And the... Overall controller turns out to be his brother, who Phil Scotty and Sir Van Epp first blackmail to get extra money out of them and then hand him over to Kronk. And then the episode ends. Yeah. With the best will in the world, I'm not following these episodes. Okay. This one is my least favourite of any of them. I think the whole convoluted, I'm um, using this record to re- restart my memory... But it wasn't. It turned out not to be a record that she'd bought. He provided the record himself, which meant that he knew what he was doing. That whole thing could have been avoided by just pretending a reaction to any one of the records that, that she had. Agreed. I can't think of anything to say. This is it defies description. The corridor people. I feel like the inside of my darkest nightmares has escaped into the real world, and I'm now watching it back on a TV screen in black and white. It's not a comfortable thought. There are some nice, odd set pieces in it. What do you mean, set pieces? The entire thing is off its tits. Yeah, it's like Phil Scrotty being um, being interviewed by Kronk and dancing all the way through it. That's quite fun. You're not convinced? No, I'm not. I haven't taken enough drugs over the course of my life to understand what on earth this sort of bizarre trip is that I'm experiencing. We're three quarters of the way through. I can't take any more. We're going to have to break before episode four. Okay. How long do you need? About 40 years. Preferably until after I'm dead. We will reconvene with episode four, which is Victim is Black. Mrs. Baddeley, breakfast is eight, please. All right, well, this is the morning after, and there's a you in that word. 
We managed episode three and then slipped into a coma. Um, as I've just described it to Simon, there was a lot of gurning and a literal money shot on a bed at the end. You have no joy in yourself. No, I don't. Not for, not for the card. Do you want to try and describe that better? I think I did an adequate job there. I discussed the plot last night. It's a little convoluted, admittedly. Yes. Yeah, I, I'm not enjoying this. You will suffer for this. Feeling a little tight behind the eyes this morning. There might have... Uh, Gin that I tried to stick down myself in order to numb the pain. It's well, the final episode of the Corridor People will make a wonderful hangover cure. I must warn you, this one is a little odder than the others. Oh, well, as long as I'm forewarned, I suppose I'm forearmed. So this one is um, the victim. Victim is black. From which year? What transmission date? Sixteenth of September, nineteen sixty-six. And apparently, after this, it was cancelled because it had got a little strange. I have no words. Run, VT. The machine speaks. Ooh, a delicious problem, if I may say so. Quite, quite delicious. Morphania, my dears. The kingdom of. For Theobald Abu, the white man's grave is anywhere you can bury him. Black world domination with a European base. Where, my dears? Why not Morphania? Who else wants it? What other use is it to anyone? To use a fairy tale to strike at us through our childhood. Cinderella. A clear case of shoe fetishism, of course. The machine has been programmed incorrectly. It's gone off its... The Van Epp woman was in it, of course. Such a mercenary bitch. The press would pay a fortune for this story. Sex, royalty and a whiff of race. If he succeeded, Abu and his organisation would have their foothold in Europe. And from that very moment... Well, you don't want me to draw pictures for you, do you? That was mercifully the, f- the fourth and final episode of The Corridor People called Victim as Black. Yeah. Which I had not really thought of. The previous episode was called Victim as Red. Didn't think anything of it. The, the title of the programme doesn't actually make any sense. So individual episode titles have taken with a huge pinch of salt. This one? Well, no, actually, all of the individual episode titles fairly accurately point to something in the episode. And this is an episode that wouldn't be made today. Really? I am fairly immune to PC crap. (laughs) As to be said, attitudes have changed somewhat in the intervening 50-odd years. (laughs) That's true. Um... Let's start by recapping the plot. Oh, yeah. Um, I'll let you do that, because I haven't got a bloody clue what's going on. Ken was saying about the title of Victim as Black is describing the fact that the the whole episode is about uh, race relations. It starts off with the arrival of the mother-in-law of the king of a very small country called Morphania in the Balkans. And... She's an Englishwoman, an inveterate shop, shoplifter, and the British government just recognises that they have to pay her the bill for her shoplifting while she's she's in the country. And there's a whole big thing about her being a, a, knowing that this is going on and regarding it as a huge joke. So she goes to see Siri Van App, and the reason that she, is, she says she's in the country is to track down her son, the King of Morphania, who has come to London to look for a girl that he's fallen in love with. And uh, Sue Van Epp recommends that he goes and she goes and talks to, to Phil Scrotty as an inquiry agent. In the meantime, there is an African nationalist character by the name of Abu, who comes across very dapper, very polite, very well turned out, goes to see Phil Scrotty, 
with the intention of getting him to find exactly to find the same girl. The reason he wants her to find Scotty to find the girl is because she's the sister of an old friend from the West Indies. While he's there and being fairly arch and introducing himself to uh, to Phil Scotty, Scotty is kidnapped by they called themselves the Brothers Grimm, didn't they? Yes, they did. who were the servants of King Ferdinand. Scotty's taken to uh, to see King Ferdinand, who also wants the girl found because this is the girl that he's decided that he wants to marry, and is revealed that this girl that he's looking for is a woman of colour, and it is recognised that there would be a big uproar were there to be a royal mixed marriage. But Ferdinand doesn't care about this. He wants to um, find the girl. And the only thing he has to um, send Scotty away with to find her is a shoe that she dropped in a disco in Soho, where they met. So everybody's pushing Scotty to uh, to find this girl. The department run by Cronk starts off just keeping an eye on the Queen Mother because of all the all the shoplifting. She tends to um, to get into trouble when she's in London. And in following her, they realise that she's associated with Scotty, that she's associated with Abu, that she's associated with Siri Van Epp. And they start seeing patterns in all of this going on. Siri Van Epp's maid is playing both sides against the middle, taking money from everybody for, to inform what's going on. Abu goes to see Siri, who by this time has a photo of the girl, uh, which is passed through a number of hands. He buys the photo off Siri Series made blackmails her into not telling anybody where the photo has gone, but then goes straight to Scrotty to say who's got the photo and the fact that she knows who the, she recognizes the girl, knows who she is, and can provide her address. So Scrotty offers to pay for this, gives her the address of Ferdinand to say, right, tell Ferdinand where she is. But what she does is she goes to Siri Van Epp, sells all this information, and disappears off with a whole load of, a whole load of money and resigning as a, as a maid. Kronk, in the meantime, has got hold of an, a sort of computer analysis machine that inter- interprets all of this as the African freedom movement wanting to get a foothold in Europe and aiming to do that through this mixed marriage. And so gives very dire warnings of an African foothold in, in Europe and that this needs to be prevented at any cost. So Kronk sends his duty assassin off to kill the girl. And it turns out that Siri Van Epp has manipulated that computer into giving these dire warnings about something that was a whole set of coincidences. Abu was actually only in the country trying to find the girl to say hello um, because she's a, uh, the sister of an old friend and doesn't even know where Morphania is. The Morphanians come out of it very well because um, the British government in order to keep their country from this mixed marriage, give Ferdinand a whole load of bribes and incentives. And his mother's delighted because she now has posh shops in her country that she can go do her shoplifting from home. And right at the end of the episode, the duty assassin kills the girl. So that, that's the plot. The racial aspect of it is very heavy-handed. I'm just sitting here feeling like I've taken a barrel load of psychotropic drugs. I have no idea what. Four hours of my life have evaporated, dissolved into the ether that I'm never going to get back. But I never have to watch this terrible rubbish again. It, that was dreadful. From beginning, all four episodes are absolutely dreadful. I cannot see. <laughs> Apart from the fact that they're outrageously camp, the whole bloody lot. Oh, the, uh, his predicting computer thing is the campus thing imaginable. It's the it's computer. tower of flashing lights. With a plastic tube that, when it's cogitating, makes chicken noises. <laughs> 
And then when it starts talking, it's a bizarre mix of Charles Hawtrey and Kenneth Williams. With a bit of Julian Clary thrown in. And he's bitchy. The only two things worth the salt in this whole thing. There's John Sharp, who plays Kronk, and Elizabeth Shepard, who plays Siri Van App. They do their level best with the script. The sc- it's terrible. I, how did they even make four episodes of this before somebody high up decided to mercifully shoot it through the face and put it out of its misery and the audience? Simon, it's dreadful. It's not. It's marvellous. You have no joy in your soul. I've got plenty of joy in my soul. It's just been eroded somewhat with this. <laughs> but it has such a, some wonderful quotes in it. It hasn't got wonderful quotes in it. There are, I think there are four lines in the whole thing that I've sniggered at. And that's I, largely because they were bitchy little barbs. It's not... I'm no solitary booze hound. It's an explanation. Oh, God, my head. Why I, I'd like to blame it on the gin. I'm a little tight behind the eyes this morning, but this is not helping. And Siri Van Epp's outfits were server lambing before there was a server lamb. The whole thing that I said when we were originally talking about drag queens being that overblown, massively overblown femininity, that's her in spades. Pardon the pun. That uh, yeah, that that was a sl- that that isn't a, a, a quotable it, thing. Simon is not a, in any way. That that was uh, one of my sides, not Simon's. Um, the I'd say casual racism, blatant racism in this. To be fair, in both directions, uh, but it's the terminology. It takes a lot for me to bulk at anything. Yeah, they, it, it's un- uncomfortable. As I said at the beginning, the the descriptions of race are very heavy-handed. But there's a section in the middle where it makes it clear they're doing that deliberately. Oh, it is quite deliberate. Um, it's just, you'd never get away with it now. No. Uh, you'd never, this episode, I mean, I'm not offended by it. There's very, very little on the entire planet that offends me. But if this was put, you, you could never repeat it. Thankfully, you could never repeat this series. If the liberal snowflakes got hold of this, they'd track down every last copy and burn it. You've got to look at it, it as all things, as very a much of its, of its time. time. Because you, you just cannot apply 21st century uh, values to old television. And it's, it's stupid when people do it. It annoys me. But that was fairly interesting. Um, in the credits, two people would just, rather than give them character names, they were first Negro and second Negro. I uh, but it came immediately after the the white nationalists were called first Mr. Grimm and second Mr. Grimm. Yeah, but they got names. They got, I, I just couldn't quite couldn't believe mean. that. Uh, it's nothing. It, these, this was made in the mid-60s. In the mid-60s, a lot of my family on my dad's side were dock workers, Preston Docks. And it was terribly common to have dogs that were named after the dog in the Dambusters. And... Um, so, so attitudes change. It was just the way that... Yeah, and this would have been about the same time as there were things like... Afghanistan. That was about the time he was coming. And he comes out with things that are horrifically racist and sexist and, and homophobic. Now, I don't... I've never liked the, the Afghanistan character. Um, I've always felt that, yeah, there's the argument you're laughing at the character rather than at the things that he says. I still want a little bit of empathy with the character, and he's just unpleasant from every level. It's been so long since I've seen either of the series where I've gone, I can't really remember a lot about it. I, I don't find this as uncomfortable to watch as the Alf Garnet stuff. I, I just couldn't quite believe what they were coming out with. A, apart from the fact that anyone a bit dusky, you know, you're foreign, and we'll just appropriate from anywhere in that part of the world, just cobble it all together and make a foreign character... 
Hey, I'm fairly sure Abu is more Arabian than African. There's one point where this beautiful black usherette is monologuing to herself in the cinema, talking about I should find a nice African man and go and live in a tree. In a tree? This is just mental. On every level, this series is mental. I should track down every copy and burn it so that no one has to watch it again. You've been sat there in smug glee for four hours. (laughs) I mean, I have to be honest, I'm far, far keener on the first two episodes, which I think are wonderful. The third episode is just a a bit of an over-convoluted plot and isn't really all that entertaining. And the the racial tones in the the final episode are are uncomfortable, even though you recognise they're done deliberately. They're done very heavy-handedly because that... That was of the time. But there's a section in the middle where they um, Pearl, the, the usherette that everybody's trying to find, talks about how she um, had a, a long and earnest conversation about race relations and reclaiming language with a, a, a very earnest liberal student who, at the end of it, had used it all as an excuse to stick his hand up her skirt. Yeah. So it was clear that they were taking a pop at the liberal, at, as well as the establishment at Liberalism. I'll take your word. They're, 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 they're just very, very heavy-handed with it. Is it over now? Is that it? Unless you want to watch it again. No, I don't ever. I've I... taken a very big hit for the team here. Four hours. You have a sixth of a day of my life has been wasted on this rubbish. I'd rather watch Love and Monsters four times on a loop than ever see a frame of that again. Oh, dear God. Yeah, that's how bad it is. It's that order of magnitude. So, we are, I think this is about as uh, polar opposite as we've ever been on anything. You adore it. I can't stand it. In terms of weirdness, wait till we get to Artemis 81. Weird? Well, I can deal with, but the scripts for this were terrible. So, yeah, if you want something camp, convoluted and... Incredibly entertaining. A free mind warp, buy this. If you don't and you'd rather watch some quality TV, buy a bottle of gin or some nice wine and buy the Macro Terror or something. So if you, if, you can, if you want to watch an episode to dip your toe into the waters of the corridor, people, I'd recommend the second episode, Victim as Whitebait, which I think is the, the best of the four. Right. So because I've, I've pushed you into sitting through this wonder of television. Mm. And you've got an expression on your face that looks a little bit like it did when we finished Threads. After Threads, we had a, a period of come down. So how about we have a corridor people come down for you? Right, okay then. Redeem yourself. What are you going to put on? Well, having suffered through the corridor people like the brave little soldier that you are, yes, I thought you might like a, a little come down treat. And knowing how much you like your classic British um, stand-ups, mm-hmm. got a little touch of Bob Monkhouse. Oh, very good. Excellent. Now, Bob Monkhouse, for the majority of his career on television, was seen as very family-friendly. His stand-up shows a little less so. And what we're going to watch is what I think was the final TV programme in his career, which isn't enormously family-friendly, okay. but is absolutely hilarious. I used to love watching this with my housemates at the time that it came out. It's from it's a BBC Two programme, about 2000, I think, 1999-2000. And it's called The Mr. Hell Show. And Bob Monkhouse plays Mr. Hell. It's a cartoon. Shall we yeah, crack let's on? Just, and... just crack on and watch it. I'll, I'll... <clears throat> Reserve judgment. I've no idea what to expect. It but can't it, be any worse. It's than... not a corridor, people. Thank God for that. Try and control your disappointment. Ron VT. Ron <laughs> VT. 
First thoughts, I can't quite believe that was a BBC programme. I'd forgotten, that. you did mention it before we watched it, but all the way through, I thought this is something from America, it was an American thing, sort of Johnny Bravo on acid, a Cartoon Network thing or an HBO thing. Nope, BBC BBC 2. That's the most surprising thing about that. I liked it. Now that's surrealism done properly. Search the seal cup of death. Yes. I have no idea what the golden baby's about, not a clue. But the um, the Victorian lady adventuress. <laughs> I like that a lot. Okay, so Mr. Hellshaw is a, uh, a, a series of cartoons very loosely connected by the, the title character, Mr. Hell, who is a devil. Um, and in this particular episode, his ex, who's an angel, turns up and leaves their son with him to look after for the day. So they go and do father and son things but in a typical Mr. Hell way it all kind of descends into anarchy and chaos so they go to a theme park and they go on the it's a small world ride which Mr. Hell hates and vomits all over the place so he reprograms it to uh, to have the little animatronic models machine gun each other and fire bazookas mm. at one another and then he gets arrested and kicked by the, the, the clown police and for the whole of the rest of the episode, he's pulling clown shoes for various bits of his anatomy. He then, where does he go, go after that? Oh, they go to a football match and his son inveigles him into cheering for the, the red team in the middle of a whole load of blue supporters. So he gets a kicking for that. Come on, Damien. Call the ref a bastard. Father, I would like to cheer for the team that I would prefer to be victorious. But I fear my weak child's voice will be lost in the general hubbub. Would you cheer for me? Whatever. Which team do you want to win? The red team! Come on, you reds! All the time through this, his son is taking photos of it. The zoo? Yeah, go to the zoo. (laughs) Mr. Hell decides that he's going to shoot the uh, the last breeding pair of pandas because he wants them for his wall. Um, But his son... (laughs) knocks his aim off, so the bullet ricochets around the um, around the zoo, causing chaos, and in the end, shooting Mr. Hell in the arse. Oh, the zoo, Father! What an excellent environment to better appreciate the fragile wonders of our world. The hulking rhino, the chimpanzees with their amusing <laughs> genitalia, and the greater Manchurian shaggy pandas. The last breeding pair in captivity. What do you say to that? A matching pair. That'll look good on my wall. And then, then there's the pastiche of the um, the circle of life. Yep. <laughs> the antelope and giraffe the are talking Hell. about how it's unfair to them. But you see them talking away while they're being eaten by hyenas. It's not typical Bob Monkhouse fur, but he is perfect as Mr. Hell. Full of, of wonderful little characters. All pastiches uh, taken to the extreme including the little old lady in the rocking chair who fills in filthy clues to crosswords in a sweet little old lady voice. 
Yeah, I liked it. That was surrealism how I enjoy um, as opposed to just mental corridor people. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, the, the one that I do remember that wasn't on there is a section called Harry Nutter, which is young lad who imagines himself into a Harry Potter type world. But it isn't. Um, it's the it's the real world, and he's just trying to impose this magic on it. It doesn't work, um, and and that's really quite entertaining as well. Serge the little seal cub, traumatized as he watched his parents club to death, has now just taken his revenge on the world. Presumably, that's the premise of each. Of Basically, thing. yes. Yeah. I mean, it, it's predominantly mediated against the fashion industry, but generally involves a bloodbath of anybody who happens to be standing around him. In this case, for some reason, um, the Canadian Immigration Authorities. And there were, there were the odd um, uh, little musical numbers as well that were jokey, which uh, that always tickles me. Oh, the, the Fathers on yeah. Bench thing. It's smoking pipes and talking about mortgages and life insurances. That's what good upstanding fathers do, not Mr. Hell's version, which is to get his wang out when he opens the front door. Yes, says to his son, how's it hanging? And the son says, at about eye level. Yeah, I enjoyed that. Mm. Uh, I would watch more of that. In fact, anything to vent my brain of corridor people. So is that giving you a bit of brain bleach? It, it has. I'm, I'm fine with that now. I think... Uh, I am going to have the Mr. Hell theme tune in my head for the next week. And since I'll be putting it on this, you can listen to well, it. You're not going to get this done in a week, are you? Unless you just want to get it out of the way and over with. I'd envisage that this was going to sit on a, uh, a very back shelf at Maverick Productions. <laughs> <laughs> Never to be revisited. We've recorded it now. My OCD will not allow it to remain unedited and uh, unproduced. So, anyway, thank you for joining us on this tortuous journey. Uh, quite literally a descent into hell in the end. I suspect Simon has enjoyed this an awful lot more than I have, just for once, because whatever we've watched, um, I do enjoy, even if it's at varying degrees. That was the most terrible crap. We never That's have to marvellous. That. Oh, you are a philistine. Ladies and gentlemen of the interweb, uh, for those of you that are interested in finding the Corridor people... It's, a, it's it, a network release. It's easy to find. Do write in with your comments. But for now, I'm going to sign off. Thank you very much for listening again. We should be back in a fortnight with the next episode. Take care. It's over. The Exton Moss Experiment featured Simon Exton and Ken Moss. All featured television soundtracks are the property of their respective producers and no infringement of copyright is intended. The programme was recorded in Rishton, Lancashire and produced by Maverick Productions. For more information, please visit our website at extonmossexperiment.blogspot.com or find us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram.